0: James 4, 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says without reason Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into, or, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. We're coming uh, into the time of Thanksgiving. This is a kind of bizarre Thanksgiving sermon. Uh, But if you think about it, maybe it's not as bizarre as you might think it would be about quarrels and conflicts. I'm thinking about the typical Thanksgiving dinner. You're going to gather together with a group of people, maybe around a table with family, maybe with some extended family. And it's interesting to me how that moment, which is really defined by gratefulness, uh, gratefulness for what is, but... For the believer, gratefulness to God for what he's done and for all he provides. But even in those moments where we gather with that sense of this is the theme of that time, it's easy to see those moments digress into something less than maybe you intended, especially relationally. It's fascinating to me how many people gather around a table to have a meal together, and it ends up being... Uh, free-for-all uh, of people just kind of at each other's throats. And I think the scriptures are pretty good at kind of telling us what we're like, that we tend to move into places of conflict and fighting and quarreling and all those kinds of things when we're in relationship, unfortunate as that may be. And I think James is pretty good about not necessarily sweeping it all under the rug, but actually calling us to pay attention to something. You're moving into this time, and this may be a great time to talk about conflict and quarreling. Talk about what it means to be in a place of contention with other people. Because you're in relationship, and I don't know of any relationship in this world where people don't discover or find themselves in difficult places where things don't seem to be going smoothly. So this morning, I want to uh, go to James and maybe get some insight as to how we might work through the conflict or maybe more so avoid those places where conflict normally might come up in our lives. James is a you know, we're talking about a whole book here, and James is an incredibly practical book. Okay? If you've read the book of James, you know that he says things like, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. In other words, don't just let these words go kind of in one ear and out the other, but actually manifest something out of your life. One of the famous phrases that seemed to bother Martin Luther was, faith without works is dead okay Uh, it tended to make his hair bristle and that really I'm not sure is where Luther uh, really had a problem with it I think the problem was is that when we kind of elevate works to a place they're not supposed to be but faith always has a manifestation attached to it faith true faith has a sense of being attached to the vine in such a way that it is bearing fruit. And so when James says faith without works is dead, he's not necessarily telling us something new. He's really restating something that Jesus has already said. Stay attached to the vine, nurture that faith, and from that you will bear good fruit. But this text, again, is a very practical text for us. And I want to suggest this morning three ways that we might kind of deal with some of these places of conflict. I think believers are to lead the way, in a sense, in a world that is rampant with conflict. We In the last two years, maybe in the last three or four years, I've noticed this sense of great polarization in the people and relationships around me. Have you noticed that? you notice that you can sit at the same table with people you've known for a long time and you have differing opinions about things that you thought you were on the same page about? We are living in times that are very fascinating that way. Relationally, you look at the world and it just seems very divided. And so when James talks about conflicts and quarrels, you realize that what we're experiencing isn't necessarily something new. So here I want to just suggest these things that come from this text. The first thing that James begins with is he says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? The thing that James begins with is really to look not so much at the fights and the quarrels. He sees them and he's helping us see them, but he's asking a question, and the question he asks is, what causes them? In other words, what's at the root of your dispute? What's at the root of your sense of, I'm quarreling or I'm feeling like I need to pick a fight with this person? What's at the root? And what I want to suggest today, the first thing is this, that we need to pay attention to the inner agitation of our lives and not just the outer aggression. You know, when I was driving down here, I was realizing that I had, a, uh, I had a schedule. I had an agenda. I had to get someplace, okay? And it's fascinating to me that when I'm on the road, how easily my agenda comes, becomes the preeminent agenda, Uh For those of you who drive in traffic, do you ever feel like your agenda is the most important one of all those other drivers? And does it affect the way you drive? Okay? I find that there is things going on inside my heart that I would not necessarily want to tell you about because they would make me look like a really petty kind of a person. I'm resenting the guy next to me that's speeding ahead of me, that's cut me off, that's asking to move into my lane when I'm trying to get to my destination. And that's really the most important thing that everybody should be thinking about. I may not be visibly quarreling with this guy, but the same kinds of things are going on inside me that cause me, To move into the place of aggression and fight. You ever notice in your life that you show up in a conversation and you say something and you wish you could take it back? Some of you may have done that this morning already. God bless you as you try to wheel that one back in. The thing is, we say those things, and Jesus had a really interesting thing to say about that in Matthew 12. He says, you're gonna be judged by every, every careless word you say. Those tend to be the careless words we say. Those things that just kind of leak out of us. That feeling that was down there, that feeling of, you've just pressed in and imposed something on me that I don't really like. And we kind of, Shove it down there into that interior space of our lives and think that we've somehow managed it. And then all of a sudden, it kind of leaks out at that person there, and they get all that poison. You see, James is pretty sharp because he says, look, pay attention to what's going on inside you. Don't just figure you can manage Manifestations. Don't just figure you can manage kind of your speech and your talk. You have to figure out what's going on inside you. And he describes the thing that's driving these quarrels and fights as hedonism. He says the desires that are inside you. The word he uses hedon, and it's a, the it's a word we get hedonism from. And hedonism is basically the priority of self-gratification, and pleasure It's where you put your agenda above everyone else's. And what hedonism does in relationship is, all of a sudden, if your agenda is the most important one, we live in a world where everyone thinks their agenda is the most important one, and so you automatically are bumping up against everybody else's agenda. Hedonism does two things relationally. One, it tends to use people to further its agenda or it tends to remove people as obstacles to that agenda. And thus you have this sense of the fight. The quarrel that goes on. So people are either tools or obstacles. And that's far less than what God views them as. It takes away from that dignity of the creator that invests dignity in his creation, in his humanity. It makes them less than they were intended to be. It is abuse. When we move from the standpoint of our Self-gratification is the highest value of life We begin to move into the places where Everyone else either is that Tool that we use or That obstacle that we need to remove So that we can get our way James picks out a couple things he talks about You don't have so you kill to get it Or You covet or you're jealous of what your neighbor has, and so you try to get that. Have you ever felt yourself in a meeting or in some other situation jealous of what someone else has? I'm not talking necessarily about their possessions, I'm talking about their status, their sense of reputation, their success. And in those places, it's easy to move into that sense of how do I get what they have? How do I take that and make it my own? How do I expand my territory into theirs? James wants you to be aware of what's going on inside you because it manifests itself in the places of aggression in your life, in the places that you begin to move against others as less than God intended them to be seen as. That's the first thing, this place of hedonism. Beware of that sense of self-gratification. To move into some of those inner places is difficult. For some of us, we've never even... Been aware enough to know what's going on inside of us. You know, people say, How are you? And you say, Fine. How are you really? And you just say, I don't know. I have no clue as to what's happening inside me. This takes some work. It takes some work to be self aware. And aware enough of some of the poison in your own life so you can begin to ask Jesus to come into that place and bring healing. This isn't about you trying to manage the poison, it doesn't work. It's about you recognizing what's there and asking Christ, the healer, to begin to come and heal those places in your life. It's a place of prayer. The second thing James talks about here is he talks about being able to distinguish the friend from the foe. <laughs> In verse 4 he says, you adulterous people. And I'm thinking, okay, now he's not real flattering here when he's talking to these people. You adulterous people. And he's not necessarily talking about these people as though they've all you know, committed adultery in their marriages. But what you have to understand is that adultery is a break in relational covenant faithfulness. And what he's talking about here is that you are making that break in your relational covenant faithfulness to God. He calls them adulterers because they've begun to cherish friendship with the world more than they cherish friendship with God. Earlier in James 2, verse 23, he calls Abraham the friend of God. And Abraham's friendship with God is defined very carefully by his faith and his faithfulness to the covenant. That's what defines his friendship with God. So when James begins to talk about being a friend of the world, he's basically saying, you're making a different covenant here. You're establishing a covenant with this world which is in opposition to God. Remember, in other parts of the Scriptures, the world is not necessarily just the creation, the humanity. What it is is it's a system. It's a system that is pushing against the ways of God. And it's run by an evil presence and force described as the devil. It is the prince and the powers of this world, the evil one. That world is the evil empire. It's the world that is in opposition to God. Pushing back against him. It isn't the people that God so desperately loves. It's the system. And here's the thing. In that system, the evil one isn't out to help everyone. He's out to basically pull everyone in and bring them to the place that he eventually ends, which is in death. His goal is to take you down. The end result. When I was uh, in college, I had a boa constrictor. You all love snakes? I hated snakes, okay? I'm still not real fond of them, but I was in Peru, and I was on a missions trip, and these kids had a boa constrictor, and they decided they were going to put them in my bed when I was sleeping. You can imagine that that was a great experience. I was so excited, but I knew that when they put this thing in my bed, that if I, if I reacted strongly, they would, they would keep doing it for the rest of the time I was in Peru. And so I just was very casual about it, picked up the snake, and fortunately, I had held the snake before, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But I decided I'd bring one back from Peru. Brought it back on the airplane Had it in a bag around my neck This is in the 70s You couldn't do that now <laughs> When the customs person Kind of was going through my bag She asked what's around your neck In the bag And I said uh Uh, it's a snake, and she said, oh, come on. I said, no, really, it's a snake. And she said, well, give it to me. And I said, I think you better let me open it up. And she said, no, I'll take care of it. She took the thing, opened it up, about leaped 10 feet backwards, and she said, we've never had this happen before. (laughs) I said, that's great. I've never had it happen before either. Got my snake home, and we would feed this, this snake live mice, So for those of you who have compassion heart for Mickey Mouse, I'm sorry. We'd put the mice in this uh, terrarium kind of thing where the snake was living, and the snake would immediately just poing. You put the mouse in, the mouse went nuts. he would just go nuts. he would be bouncing off the top of the terrarium, trying to avoid that. And the, the snake was so quick, it would just take it, swallow it, and it was over. We did this one time, though, and the snake did not eat the mouse immediately. And the mouse bounced, did all his thing, anxious stuff. And after a while, he stopped doing that. He stopped trying to avoid the snake. He began to kind of make home there. And it got comfortable for him. And then one day we came in mouse was not where it was, it now was a large lump inside the snake. I think sometimes we become friends of the world in such a way that we just grow comfortable with the environment. And we forget that there's a snake. And the snake really wants to eat you up. God, on the other hand, longs to see you become all you were intended to be. He put his breath in you, his spirit in you. And he is jealous for that spirit. He will not share it. If you go back to Genesis 2, where it says that God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, he has given you, animated your life. And now, he longs for you to understand how deeply committed he is to keeping you with him. So much so that he would send his son into this world to find you again. God longs for you to maintain that covenant relationship with him and not to get sucked into the comfort of the world that basically goes back to the self-gratification of hedonism. Remember what it means to distinguish between the friend and the foe in this place. And the last thing that I want to talk about then, the third thing, is that you would not only be able to address the inner stuff that's going on and not only distinguish between friend and foe, but that finally you would begin to really cultivate humility And that you do that through practicing and through promise. Paul says that God gives greater grace. In the midst of all that you hear of the contention and all the stuff that's going on inside you, there is grace for you. But where does that grace come? He says, but God Opposes the proud, but he gives favor or grace to the humble. You see, humility makes space for the grace of God. Things like ego, pride, tend to oppose and close out that space. My ego so easily fills the space of my life. In fact, it fills the space of my life and bleeds over, and would love to fill the space of your life as well. The thing is that humility is the way you begin to find your way back from the quarrel and the fight. Humility is the place that you begin to say, you know what? I'm pretty helpless in this place, that there's an emptiness inside me. And God says, when you come to that realization, there is great grace. When you keep trying to run on the hamster wheel, you just get more exhausted. When you finally are willing to say, I can't do this. When you open up that space grace comes, grace comes, greater grace. So here's the part of the humility that I want you to think about. Humility is something that really is cultivated as we practice some things that James talks about here. He starts out and he says, practice submitting to God. And I'm using that word practice These are imperatives that James is giving, these next words. They're like command words. And I'm telling you, you need to practice them because every day of our lives, there's a pushback. You've lived the years of your life. You've lived pretty much in the rhythms of this world. And now you're coming to something where James is saying, now you need to push back against those rhythms with different practices. So the first practice is submit to God. And that word submit means to arrange your life under God. Arrange your life under the authority of God, under the way he speaks into your life, under his direction, under his Agenda. So when you pray and you say, God, help me to be successful in this thing I'm doing, maybe the prayer is, God, what's the thing you're doing that I want to be praying for and I'm being a part of? Maybe instead of praying for your agenda, you're asking God for his. Submit to God. The second thing is resist the devil. In the 4th century, there was a man named Evagrius, a believer who uh, wrote a book. I actually have a copy of the book. Can you imagine a 4th century book on your shelf? It's not that old. It's a new copy. Evagrius wrote this book. It was called Talking Back. And what he did was he went through and he listed 500 scriptures... And various temptations that the evil one might bring to you, that the devil might push at you with. And he had these scriptures lined up around these things. And when it came to resisting the devil, the place that you went was, one, the cross and the resurrection. But then you did what Jesus did when he was out in the desert. You spoke back to him the scripture and prayer in that place. Resist the devil. What I want to suggest is when you find yourself in a place where something's going on inside you that is corrupt, that is not good, that you pay attention and you begin to pray the scriptures into that place so that you can push back. Resist the devil and then draw near to God. Draw near to God, that whole idea, the word "draw, draw near," is a word of intimacy. And what James is saying is, you need to move into the place of closeness and vulnerability with God. And know that as you do that, He longs to come near to you, that He's given you access into the very throne room of the king. Come near. Draw near to God. And then he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In many ways, he's talking about the things that are external to us, the things that we do with our hands, and then the things that are going on in our hearts. And you notice that he uses the phrase with the heart, that it's double-minded. In other words, it's trying to do many things as opposed to the one thing. It's trying to give its attention and its affections to more than one thing. It is double or divided. Purity in the scriptures always has to do with something being integrated together as a whole. It is the removal of that which is not of God, so that all of God might be available. So, in our hearts, when you are in the crucible of life, oftentimes you begin to see surface all the impurities. Notice that quarrels and conflict typically end up happening when you're in a tension point, when something difficult's happening you tend to be a little more snappy at that person that's sitting next to you. You tend to maybe say those things that you wouldn't normally say, but all of a sudden, the crucible, and all those impurities are coming out. James is saying, purify your heart. That means where you begin to see the impurities, the attachments that are not God, you need to detach from those things. And then he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Those were all things that went along with repentance. They are all things that went along with the awareness that I am a human being that is sinful, broken. And rather than just playing into my pleasures and trying to avoid the reality of my sin, I need to look at that and turn from those places of my sin and repentance. And then the last practice is the summary practice. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up. Practices, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, Grieve and mourn in repentance. And then humble yourselves. But then he fuels that practice with three promises. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just know that you've got weapons that are spiritual weapons to fight with that will push the devil back every time if you use them. Secondly, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. This is not a journey that God doesn't want you to find him in. He longs that you will find him. He will show up. He will come to you. And the last one is humble yourselves and he will lift you up. It is so easy in the world that we live in to feel somehow marginalized or dismissed to feel the insecurities of having to try to insert yourself and to assert yourself in situations so you will be noticed. And you may not want to let on that you're doing that, but all of us have this sense of, I don't want to go unrecognized. And so oftentimes what we do is we try to control that. We try by our strength to do something, and what James says here is humble yourself. Humble yourself and let God lift you up. That word humble means to stoop low as though you're going under something. Stoop low that God would raise you up. As you move into this time of thanksgiving, I hope you'd be incredibly thankful to a God that provides and cares for you. But that you'd also realize that in the midst of relationship, the potential for conflict is great, but the grace of God is greater still. Let me pray for us. Thanks, Lord Jesus, for this time and for your love and the fact that there is no issue going on inside of us that you cannot address in a healing and restorative way. And as you restore us inside, may you restore our relational connections in these places where there is great polarization, opposition. Lord, would you begin to help us to be peacemakers because of your goodness. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.